Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Sully, and I am here with Will, Gordon, Ben, and LaShawn. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. The opioid crisis is still going as we speak, and the COVID-19 pandemic has only made it worse. News articles from all over Canada have discussed how public health measures taken against the pandemic have consequently hindered other measures, such as supervised consumption sites, which are crucial in the fight against the opioid crisis. Until recently, these sites were running at reduced capacity, thereby decreasing access to this service, which has been associated with increased overdose-related deaths. So what are supervised consumption sites and what are their goals? So supervised consumption sites, or SCS, are provided in legally sanctioned facilities, and they basically allow individuals to consume pre-obtained drugs under the supervision of trained staff and are designed to reduce the health risks often associated with drug consumption. So for example, overdoses or maybe secondary illicit drugs that are more toxic, like fentanyl, within the pre-obtained drugs. Yeah, and in addition to that, these supervised consumption sites often include sterile supplies, education on safer consumption, um, and like Ben mentioned, overdose prevention, whether they're using a naloxone. They also have a bunch of uh, services that they can refer individuals to, such as um, things related to treatment, housing, income, support, and other services. In addition to safe consumption sites, from speaking from my personal experience, um, in 2015, when I worked as a pharmacy assistant, that was kind of the first time I was made aware of harm reduction. And the particular harm reduction strategy in that case was the needle exchange program. So what we did is we had a public health nurse, I believe, from the health unit. And she basically gave us a bunch of kits where it had like clean syringes and like other supplies that are uh, helpful, like alcohol swabs and a tourniquet in order to catch your veins properly. And essentially, the purpose of these needle exchange programs is to ensure that people who use IV drugs or intravenous drugs um, can safely in- inject them into their body without kind of damaging their 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 skin or their, their body and ensuring that they're using a clean needle that's not contaminated with HIV or hepatitis. So That was the first time I learned about harm reduction and safe needle exchange programs. What these supervised consumption sites do, though, is they take this up a notch. And instead of just handing handing, um, a kit to someone who uses uh, intravenous drugs, essentially they provide like a safe space as well as trained staff to, to essentially help people to inject drugs safely and to help with any unintended consequences of using drugs such as overdoses. I had a question regarding um, safe consumption sites. So for if an individual who was accessing this service um, was to bring in their pre-obtained drugs, are there rules or regulations, policies in place to test these drugs to ensure that you know maybe they're not laced with you know, something like fentanyl or carfentanyl that might increase the risk of the individual using them at the facilities? Yeah, that's a good point, Will, because in our we discussed in our opioid episode that um, drugs being laced with fentanyl or other synthetic opioids 
was basically the number one cause of opioid-related overdoses, right? So given that it's a harm reduction strategy, um, their science has been able to develop certain kind of test strips to test and detect fentanyl in drug supplies. I'm not sure then um, what happens after if it, someone, you know, the pre-obtained drugs that someone comes in with, if that tests positive for fentanyl, I'm not sure if whoever the, the trained person on, on site would just kind of, you know, maybe tell them to use less or something like that. I'm not sure what the policy is after something tests positive, but they do. There are some safe consumption sites that use fentanyl test strips to test drug supplies. Do they contain like a safe supply of drugs at some of these supervised no, consumption sites? No, no, okay. no. Because I, I know that's what they're trying to do now, isn't it? Anyways, no. We'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's, I know maybe as a pre kind of step to that, they do mm. have, um, there's some places that have prescription heroin um, right. where, right? So they, they're they able to, and also in that episode, opiate episode, Will was talking about um, the pharmaceutical industry might be able to play a role because they can kind of ensure the quality and safety of, of drugs. And mm. that that's kind of one of the purposes of having the prescription um, heroin. But it's not a very, it's not a best practice yet. Yeah, sure. that'd be extremely controversial bringing in the pharmaceutical yeah. industry to like very, test mm, the yeah. safety of these drugs when they started the whole problem in the first place, right? Right, right, mm. right. That is true. Yeah, not, not only test it, produce it. Mm. Yeah. But, but guess what though? Um, there are involved, right? Who makes the naloxone kits? It's true. It's true. Right? Who makes Narcan, right? And then who makes the Suboxone buprenorphine, the pharma industry? So... They are already, you know, if it's, I don't know if, I know Purdue Pharma was a big one, but pharmaceutical companies are, you know, unfortunately profiting from the opioid epidemic. I know right now we're talking in the context of Canada, but are there any other countries uh, who have uh, implemented the supervised consumption sites? I mean, I know, I know the first legally sanctioned one was in Bern, Switzerland. Yeah. And then on top of that, there are 120 currently operating in countries around the world. And on top of Switzerland, there's Canada, obviously, Australia, Denmark, France, Germany, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, and Spain. But where's the U.S.? Yeah, I noticed he didn't mention the U.S. there. (laughs) Well, because what is the current situation in the U.S. is that there are currently none due to legal and ideological obstacles. And there have been talks about opening a few safe consumption sites, but the plans are continuously being delayed, obviously because of those aforementioned barriers, but also of COVID as well. Just to add to Ben's point, there are no legally sanctioned operating safe consumption sites in the United States. There are, however, there's some um, programs that have been approved to, to start. I know specifically in... I think Philadelphia last actually this year in February they were they were given the green green light by the courts because there was an appeal pending and mm-hmm. um they announced that they were going to open in I think February or March um before you know obviously before the pandemic kind of yeah. came in full force and then there was a huge protest I believe so they kind of delayed their plans to start so even though I would say in general, the United States is not a very quote unquote illegal drug friendly country because they, mm. you know, when we refer to things like the war on drugs, you immediately think of the U.S. involved either as, you know, upstream or downstream. So there's a lot of barriers um, 
politically um, in terms yeah. of in terms of running, approving, and operating safe consumption sites in the U.S. And that's actually really interesting because even in Canada, the first uh, supervised injection facility was Insight, which initially was a Vancouver-based NGO called the Portland Hotel Society. And they started off as a discrete facility that used this vacant-looking building mm -hmm. um, to avoid that kind of public resistance that you, they might be experiencing right, right now in the U.S. Yeah. And I think another part of the U.S. too with it, with, with drugs being politicized, it's also criminalized, right? Mm. So yeah. you think of even, I'm not sure what the, the laws are there for specific for those safe consumption sites that are pending approval because I do believe the U.S. District Attorney was saying that kind of any state that implemented safe consumption sites, they would kind of throw the federal arm of the law on them. So people who work, innocently work at these sites, right, to kind of help people um, to prevent drug overdoses, mm -hmm. they would also be liable to certain charges, right? So you think of all those roadblocks and it's almost, you know, given the, the climate there, it's, yeah. it's pretty impossible to kind of have a safe consumption site working safely, if I could say that. Yeah, yeah but... Here's the thing, though. You mentioned that drugs is criminalized in the U.S., but however, it kind of is still criminalized. Mm. But the distinguishing factor here is that we have legally sanctioned supervised consumption sites. So not allowing for supervised consumption sites to open in the mm. U.S. because, you know, the whole war on drugs mentality and the legal barriers, that wasn't an, ex an excuse in Canada. Yeah, but keep in mind, Sal... There have been at least one that I know of that has been legally allowed to operate. And despite being legally allowed to operate, they're not operating. Yeah. So it's, it speaks more beyond, you know, just political or politics, I should say. It's the kind mm -hmm. of the general ide ideology within the general public that's very resistant to the whole, you know, even back in the day, I don't know if you guys know of this term, enabling. You know, you'd watch shows yeah. like intervention on a and e and it's like enabling is about don't enable to use drugs and and i think that still prevails there right anything that's not yeah. abstinence based or treatment based in the u.s is kind of forbidden so i think even when it's illegal um you have a lot of opposition to it yeah so i mean now we're in the well now we're talking about well basically barriers to adopting supervised consumption size so what are the fundamental barriers to it yeah i think one of the ones that i hear often at least is that having supervised consumption sites in certain communities will cause an increase in drug use or injection use and you really allow more people to use drugs. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, so you have the you have the legal obstacles that we were debating about Sully and then once you get past the legal obstacles, you get the ideological obstacles where you know right. pe people uh, or, you know, communities or cities, um, the people living in those communities are vehemently opposed to kind of those kinds of harm reduction strategies. Like, just the concept. I mean, I have to be honest with you, too. Like, um, referring back to that example of when I learned about um, uh, needle exchange programs, even in the, the general sentiment with my coworkers, too, is like, wait, we're giving people needles to, to use drugs? Mm -hmm. Does that... It doesn't feel, Ooh. it didn't feel right to me. I had to go home and like really think about, you know, because as I said, growing up, you know, drugs are bad. We shouldn't enable them. And then we're going to give someone a clean needle to. So it was a very hard conflict that I True. had to overcome. 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that the basic uh, premise and to go back to the the harm reduction uh, principles in our last episode is to focus on the harms associated with um, addictive drug use. Uh, We have to understand that addiction in in of itself is a disease, just like cardiovascular disease and other types of diseases. And we have to, the approach is different. The, the difference with, um, you know, substance use diseases and other diseases is that the disease is that it's a use of a substance. Yeah. You know, you have to get people to use that substance safely, right? So uh, I, I don't like to draw examples in this way, but if you think of something like hypertension, um, a lot of hypertension is associated with a high intake of sodium, right? So a harm reduction approach for um, hypertension in that case is to help help people maybe um, eat salty foods safely and cut down on their salt intake. So you might want to drink more water, exercise, right? So mm-hmm. in that way, there's some kind of parallel overlap in that you want to minimize the risk associated with whatever it is that you're doing. So I wanted to emphasize that. I, I, I understand mm. the parallel, but I think mm. just to play devil's advocate, there's more complex factors in re- relation to drug or substance use yes, is because obviously definitely. you have the crime and violence aspect of this as well, yes. which people are afraid yes. of bringing into their community. Right. So um, I think decriminalization obviously has been shown to work with more softer substances, AKA cannabis, mm. but I'm, mm. I personally don't know the answer of whether it would work for more harder substances such as heroin, etc. But if it helps get rid of this whole, not in my backyard uh, mentality, then I think it's an avenue worth investigating with obviously evidence and whatnot. Yeah, and I think you're talking about the decriminalization aspect. And I think the obvious thing that comes to mind is what's happening in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in in the 1990s, Portugal was really facing a huge issues with, with heroin use and obtaining illegal drugs from different drug markets. So in, in 2001, the Portugal government actually decriminalized the possession and use of illicit drugs. Mm-hmm as a as kind of a, a further act to commit to harm reduction strategies. Mm. But what I want to make clear, though, is that having supervised consumption sites doesn't mean you should legalize yes. you know, yeah. the use right. of drugs. Yeah, yeah. That's that the, is, cl- needs to be a clear right. distinction. There. Before we move on, though, so to add to LaShawn's point, by decriminalizing the possession of illicit drugs for personal use... Because I believe mm. I believe that's what the specific law is. It's not legal to you know to kind of sell drugs. That's not what decriminalization means. It just means yeah. that you won't be criminalized for the possession or use of drugs for your own personal yeah. supply. The that's key cute. thing with that is they did notice a huge drop over time mm-hmm. in their opioid overdose related deaths. So yeah. it mm-hmm. it there is I would say the evidence for decriminalization. Um, based on the levels of evidence that we look at in public health is actually stronger than safe consumption sites. So with that being said, um, what are some of those the evidence around safe consumption sites that we have today t- in order to address the opioid-related overdoses and deaths? So what we've found from the literature, and these are over 100, I think, evidence-based peer-reviewed studies, is they've consistently proven the following positives of these sites, which mm-hmm. is that it increases the entry into substance use disorder treatment, obviously, if you have these mm-hmm. networks as- affiliated with these sites. 
Um, it reduces the amount and frequencies that client use drugs independently by themselves if they're at home and like not in a safe environment. The evidence also shows that supervised consumption sites have reduced the risk of HIV and hepatitis C. And, and they've also successfully managed on-site overdoses and reduced drug-related uh, overdose deaths. For me, when I'm thinking about these studies... Uh, when I look, when I looked into some of the literature, I think Gordon and I had a discussion about this earlier. We're, we're seeing that, especially a lot of the evidence coming out of Canada with the Insight Safe, uh, injection facility or supervised consumption site. Uh, most of the studies that were done were observational mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, your kind of clinical trials mm-hmm. and randomized control studies. Yeah. I think the key here is goes back to, um, if we're when we're saying safe consumption sites or evidence based, we don't really necessarily talk about the quality of these studies, right? We don't talk about the kind of sample sizes of these studies. We don't talk about the context of these studies. Studies from Switzerland are those findings reproducible in Canada and vice versa. So, mm-hmm. are we homogenizing the populations across countries that are uh, that use um, intravenous drugs, right? There's mm-hmm. a danger in kind of you know, taking something and scaling it to a different setting. And we don't really analyze the nuances with the different populations. We don't know what, you know, is is access to healthcare a factor in determining the success of these safe consumption sites? Um, is, you know, stigma a factor as well from the general public? So I wouldn't say necessarily the, the jury is out on safe consumption sites. But what I would say is there are also a lot of barriers in terms of why we don't have answers to these questions. Safe mm-hmm. consumption sites, as we've discussed in, you know, a lot of research that we use in public health typically comes from the United States. And in the United States, it is not legal to operate any safe consumption facilities, right? So we're, the evidence is lacking, maybe no fault of any one person or organization, but there is there's still a lot of work to do to kind of justify and even optimize the way safe consumption sites work. So with that said, um, a lot of times uh, policymakers and decision makers, right? If you can't make the argument for why a life is important, and that's very sad that sometimes that's not good enough, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, True. You know, lives are important, so do X, Y, and Z. Um, we, all, we also have to understand that in the world we live in, there are limited resources available to kind of do um, interventions in public health work. So as far as what we know now, what are the economic arguments in favor of harm reduction programs such as safe consumption sites? Right. So they did one analysis con- that was conducted in San Francisco, and it estimated that for each dollar spent on these sites, roughly $2.33 US would be saved in emergency, medical, law enforcement, and other costs, which yields in total a savings of $3.5 million per year. And then another report from the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health found that opening just one of these facilities in Baltimore would save the city six million annually in relation to those costs. So it's interesting that everything is in regards to an economic evaluation is in favor of these sites, which Mm -hmm. is directly in contrast with the whole not in my backyard mentality of what a taxpayer has may say in the sense of. Why am I paying as a taxpayer for people to do drugs? I would say, to be honest with you, I think we need to... um, One of the problems, I think, with public health, too, is we, even though it is our duty, when we do feel like we have good evidence, to try and go on a campaign to convince 
people to maybe change their perspective. A lot of times these people don't have the information that we have. And the reason I'm saying this is because if you're a family and maybe family of four and you have two young children and you, you know you like a house in a community where there's a safe consumption site maybe one kilometer away and then there's another community where you, you know you like the house and there's no safe consumption site and you like the houses equally well you might be more inclined to choose the neighborhood without the safe consumption site not knowing that the presence of safe consumption sites do not bring more crime to the area right so i think it's our duty also as public health practitioners to kind of engage in these discussions and provide the relevant stakeholders such as you know people in the community with information that they need in order to come on board with these initiatives because the very thing that public health doesn't like which is othering people public health often others people because it's almost it goes back to our you know our misinformation episode if the misinformation campaigns and disinformation campaigns are louder than the actual right correct information campaigns what 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 choice do people have to believe but those information that they're getting right so i think it's just a duty for us to kind of let's just have some of those discussions you can't convince everybody right i i acknowledge that but there are people who can be convinced who we aren't convincing support i wanted to add related to the economic side of things with the whole not in my not in my backyard mentality because of the lack of information and understanding of what safe consumption sites are mm-hmm. and also like that um, realization mm-hmm. that they don't actually bring additional crime and also other sorts of um, factors mm-hmm. i think you know like as we know you know the housing market as uh, with any other market is driven by uh, supply mm-hmm. and demand right and if most of public discourse is around the crime aspect i would assume that houses in like the closer vicinities to these sites would significantly drop in value and and that's and that has nothing to do right. with yep. it, whether it's true or not it's right percep- perception right yep. perception is reality exactly yeah. and so given that i think uh, for example if i was living in the neighborhood it, it's it's not even a matter of whether i support these sites or not it's a matter of these sites are causing my my i guess the valuation on my house on my home to to decrease so you right. know i can i can fully support this but you know, on the other hand, I need to also consider my own, like guess, cost of living and everything that's related to that. So, yeah, yeah. And that's exactly right, which is why it goes back to, I think all stakeholders need to be involved in this process. I think when you start imposing people and kind of creating divides, you have problems such as, you know, you know, you have those perceptions that can lead to the um, housing, you know, communities houses and communities losing their value because people perceive it to be a you know kind of a less desirable area so if we don't get people involved that's a reality that's going to happen right so what are the um you know we talked about baltimore the case the business case for consumption sites in baltimore and we talked about you know in san francisco the economic arguments um but what about canada are there any um, evaluation studies or economic evaluations to make the case for consumption sites in Canada? Yeah, well, one study actually of, um, not surprisingly, Insight, it found that um, the societal benefit that can be attributable to Insight was roughly around $6 million a year, uh, comparable to Ben's number, I think, in Baltimore. 
Yeah, and then uh, another cost-effective study also showed that the associated savings from supervised consumption site actually exceeded the cost of the facility actually operating. So yeah, and at the at the end of the day, because we always want to go back to, you can't really put a price on the life of a human, especially if it's a loved one of yours. The data does show that if I if I'm not mistaken, uh, around the safe consumption sites. Uh, around the world, there have been no opioid overdose-related deaths that have been recorded as a result. So even if you look at it purely from uh, public health's goal is to prevent premature mortality, safe consumption sites um, seem to be doing that. Um, When people use substances alone, there is a, a greater likelihood that they will have an overdose and die. So I just wanted to point that out as well. Yeah, and you bring the fact that the supervised consumption sites you're you're not alone. You're always being supervised just in case. But there's a whole other dynamic when you consider COVID-19 and the pandemic that's ongoing and its relation to these supervised consumption sites. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of hurdles that come to mind. Yeah, especially when you consider how the pandemic has, you know, disrupted our daily lives and, you know, physical distancing and social distancing, which kind of goes against the very fabric of and the principles of a safe consumption site where it's kind of a, a non-judgmental, non-stigmatizing community in which you can use drugs safely. And if the, you know, if the capacity of these are diminished significantly and there's all these barriers to kind of use these sites, then you might have more people using alone. So wh- what are some other ways in which these consumption sites were um, disrupted during the pandemic, especially from in the context of Canada? A simple one is increased waiting times. And that's, you know, because of social distancing rules. And so Mm -hmm. you have less uh, staff involved in Mm -hmm. these sites. You have Mm -hmm. uh, less people willing to go outside to, uh, and let alone go to supervised consumption sites. Right. And then you have, well, you have the lineups, which, you know, I mean, if you want to respect the two meter rule between person to person, uh, yeah, all these pile up to, Increased waiting times, which means not it's it's undesirable for people who use drugs to go to these sites in the first place. So all these factors we mentioned served as barriers for people to access um, safe consumption facilities and safe consumption sites in a timely manner. But has this led to a change in the number of opioid related overdoses and deaths that we're seeing? Yeah, I, I mean, just looking at the city of Toronto, for example... It was reported that paramedics responded to 25 suspected over opioid overdose deaths in April, which was actually the highest number since September 2017. Mm. And we, we see in different um, jurisdictions that the number of opioid or calls for opioid overdoses are increasing. So, do you, But do you think then, is this a result of more people using um, drugs or that there's less access to these consumption safe consumption sites it could probably be both right Mm. you know these you know um this pandemic the restrictions that are being in place is causing individuals to be more lonely and isolated and as a result um as you mentioned earlier gordon individuals may be taking these drugs alone Mm. and in an unsupervised fashion so it, it resulted in a lot of deaths in toronto another aspect that COVID has made worse regarding this whole situation made it a lot more complicated is the community backlash to these safe consumption sites so for example the supervised consumption site 
in downtown Toronto has gotten a lot of backlash from the community recently in the past few months because mm-hmm. the situation has gotten a lot worse in regards to needles, um, homeless populations, substance users, uh, defecation on the streets where the community is like, they've been saying across multiple social media boards that, you know, it's it's only gotten worse these past few months and it's all because of this safe consumption site. But there isn't any recognition of the fact that because of COVID and all of these restrictions that it probably has become worse due to COVID. So mm-hmm. it's kind of ironic that the, these sites have, which have been shown to improve um, these aspects of the community have only gotten worse because of COVID. So it just kind of complicates the discussion in the future of mm-hmm. uh, going against those individuals who are like, not in my backyard. And then when you say, well, the evidence shows this, they would be like, well, look at the COVID evidence or like they would argue against it more. So I'm curious how these sites are going to f- function in the future, especially if there's more community backlash. That's that's a great point. Um, another point that I found interesting was that a lot of the staff that are present at these supervised consumption sites now, as a result of many of the COVID-19 protocols and restrictions that were put a place forward, they're often seen in masks and gowns. Um, and I think, you know, this might really act as a barrier for a lot of individuals trying to seek out help at these facilities because, you know, there's also the stigmatization that these people are doing something wrong and, you know, they're consuming drugs at this site. But a lot of what supervised consumption sites are based on is relationship building. Mm. And if that, if there's that physical barrier in place, I think it really limits that sort of interaction and that kind of face-to-face interactions and relationship building aspect of harm reduction and um, supervised consumption sites in general. Yeah. So kind of what you're saying is you show up to the supervised consumption site and you're going to, you know, utilize the, the facility and then you have all these people wearing masks and you might think, mm-hmm. you know, wow, I might do, do they think I'm dirty? Like, are, yep. am I, you know, what's going on? Even though they, I'm sure they're aware of the ongoing pandemic, it kind of reinforces in their head the stigma yeah. that they already feel from society. And then right. that that's kind of, that gets in the right. way of, of the effectiveness of these sites. Right. And are they even going to want to go to these facilities if that's the case, right? Right, So right. it could act as a barrier. Right. And then I'm sure too, even with all the changes in the, when you get down to the nitty gritty, all the changes in the the protocols, right? Not yeah. just the masks and PPE. Just like, oh well, sorry, we can't do that anymore because of COVID nineteen. These are the new rules during COVID nineteen, and people might just feel a little bit frustrated with it. So right. yeah, yeah, and even the fact that you know you just don't want to go outside because you don't want to potentially get COVID nineteen, mm. right? So mm. maybe they're. Yeah individuals are just looking to limit their interactions with others and going outside. Mm. So it it just goes to show the dynamic between the two um, epidemics or two public health issues that are kind of compounding each other, the opioid problem and the substance use uh, public health side of things mm. and the pandemic sides and how they overlap. The double burden of social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in, in the short term... Um, so even though we, we've been discussing that um, social or physical distancing protocols have kind of changed the experience for people using these supervised consumption sites, um, we do recognize that there are they are in place to protect the health and safety of 
those working at the facility as well as those utilizing the facility, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we we have to emphasize that as well. There are unintended negative consequences like we discussed. Um, however, there those measures are put in place to limit the spread of COVID-19. Um, so in the meantime, um, being the innovative society that we are, there are certain things that have been implemented. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are other technologies that have been put in place to kind of um, help people to or supervise people when they're using uh, substances. And I know there's a lot of pilot projects that are being implemented in, in the virtual or phone-based sense where um, a trained specialist can witness people um, using drugs. And I guess um, they would be able to, if, uh, if the, I don't know if the person's unresponsive, they're able to then uh, mobilize resources like 911 to come to their, their aid. Um, but I'm also wondering then if homeless people, for example, are disproportionate users of um, of substances. Um, I'm not right. sure they would have access to internet and stuff for like a Zoom. I'm not sure what technologies use, but uh, this might not be equitable. But that's a whole not me. It might be a whole other con- conversation. A lot of what's going on with uh, supervised consumption sites is that they they often come in different forms. You got the standard form where there's you know there's a building, there's a uh, there's a there's a physical location that's always present, but there's also the options of having mobile supervised consumption sites. And I know that's, um, that's usually implemented in some jurisdictions to kind of deal with that situation or scenario. But I'm not sure about if these are being currently used given the pandemic. One point I want to add is I would caution against scaling back physical distancing rules mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think that with the amount of community backlash often faced by these facilities and services Hmm. if you were to you know give them an exemption and say for example the six feet distancing rule um, between people you know is can be cut down when people are accessing these sites Hmm. but we understand that it's you know you're reducing these restrictions Hmm. in order for more people to access these services and you know potentially save more lives but from the perspective of the greater community you're, I can understand that if they get angry and see this as another step of like weakening the rules that these facilities have to abide by. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, with the amount of backlash that they already face, I don't mm-hmm. think this, I think there needs to be a lot of thought before something like this is, is considered. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And then at the end of the day, in addition to opioid overdose related deaths, COVID-19 is also a real health risk, especially for vulnerable populations that are that use intravenous drugs. So um, they must be protected from both. So there has to be mm. alternative solutions uh, created to kind of minimize the risk of both simultaneously, however hard it might be. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.